So we've been dealing with the citizenship of heaven for the last uh, several weeks. And uh, part of it that came out was that, you know, we, we just need to understand what it is to be a citizen of heaven. And, and so the, some of the verbiage that came out and some of the people that uh, visited with last week said, we, we need a revival is what we need. And so I'm thinking, well, that's absolutely correct. And so this morning, we're going to park in the 85th Psalm for just about the whole morning. And we're going to talk about revival. We're going to talk about uh, the foundation that God's Word gives us to have a revival. And folks, this is not going to be easy, but the revival begins with you. You know, a revival and awakening are they're synonyms. Uh, people often picture a revival, <clears throat> excuse me, they picture a revival with a big tent, uh, fans going, people fanning themselves, uh, people yelling uh, as they spread the, the word, uh, people preaching of hellfire and brimstone. You can just hear Spurgeon yelling, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you're all going to burn in hell. And it's just pretty exciting for some of those people. Many pray for revival or awakening to come to this nation, yet some people are sitting and saying, Jesus, you need to come quickly. And as you'll see later on, that's not a prayer for revival. So revival in this nation has happened. Back in the 1700s, 1734 to about 1743, there was the, quote, Great Awakening. During this time, people sensed the presence of God very, very powerfully. They were convicted to God. They were repentant of, of, they were repentant of their sins. And, and prayer came very, very easily to the people. People had a thirst for God's words. And there were many, many authentic conversions during that time. And the backsliders begin to correct their ways. And then the second great awakening for this nation came in the beginning of the 1800s. You know, in the 1800s, there was one in 15 Americans of the population at that time that belonged to an evangelical church. And by the 1850s, the population of this nation had grown fourfold. But the amazing thing was that those connected to evangelical churches grew tenfold. So there's other revivals that begin to follow that, one in 1857, uh, one during the Civil War time. In 1875, there was urban revivals that began. We hear of people like D.L. Moody, uh, who participated in one of those revivals in Chicago and then helped lead revivals later on. And after World War II, there was other revivals. They were healing revivals. Campus Crusade for Christ began. In 1949, Billy Graham popularized evangelical Christianity for a new generation. And it just exploded on the scene, and there was excitement. And then there was other revivals in 1950. One began at Wheaton College, a revival there. And then in the 60s and 70s, the revivals of National Scope were developed the first was the charismatic revival followed by a widely publicized Jesus movement emphasizing the turn away from drugs, sex, and radical politics. Wow. That was back in the 70s. They wanted to take the Bible at face value, and they wanted to find Christ as their Savior. Then in the 90s, there was a new series of revival, many of beginning on college campuses, one of the first ones began at, right here in Texas at Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas. Henry Blackaby began a movement. Promise Keepers began 
and capitalized at the very moment in time in 1997 with a men's million man march on the National Mall in D.C. So this is a very, very brief and not very concise history to help you understand that revivals emerge at different times of spiritual and moral decline, which usually leads to very, very intense prayer. God puts the longing into the hearts for those to be closer to him and to have a more intimate relationship. The Holy Spirit takes people to a spiritual depth that they do not have the ability on their own to achieve. Their conviction affects sinners to accept Christ of those people that are around them and for those people to repent of their sins. Most importantly, God gets the praise, honor, and glory for the awakening in people's hearts. Revival or some of these awakenings, though, as you see, are cyclical. They have a high point. Everybody feels better. They feel closer to God. The world gets in our way then, and our choices begin to change, and the awakening declines, or it completely goes away from the Bible and God's word. We see in the Old Testament people, God's people cry out, for God to come save them, for God to help them. And God will reach out and forgive them and help them, and then they begin to think, well, there's got to be something better, and suddenly they're grabbing for more gods, or they begin to lean on themselves. So this roller coaster ride is not new. It's happened before. It's not of God's doing, but it's of man's choices that we ride this roller coaster. You see, man cannot manufacture these revivals or these awakenings. They come about as a sovereign act of mercy and grace by God himself. Today, Christianity, whatever that really means, may be prevalent, but it is not powerful. That power comes from God's sovereign supernatural power, while the decision of these awakenings also belong to God. He gives us the privilege of hastening the day that we may be involved in a revival or awakening, but we must humbly repent of our sins for those to happen. Did did you hear that? Did you, can you wrap your head around that? The words, Jesus come quickly, are not a a a prayer of repentance. It's not a prayer for revival. Rather, it's a cry of desperation and relinquishing the responsibilities that our master has given us while we are here on this earth. You see, God has granted in our lives the opportunities to be his vessels in the world and the conduit of these awakenings. We don't have a revival today because we don't want to change. We talk of revivals. We sing about revivals. We have some motivation about having revivals. But a self-motivated prayer asking for a revival is not the move of the Holy Spirit. Most, Most people don't want to change because they don't want the pain of change. People don't want to work toward the experience of a revival because they're comfortable with where they are. You see... Christianity today is kind of like this. I participate in church when I want to or when I think 
I should, or when it's convenient for me. I pick and choose the depth of my faith, and you know what? God responds to that level. We need a healthy, respectful fear of God and what he can do. So grab your Bibles, turn to the 85th Psalm. The 85th Psalm is going to explain and describe and invite revival. We see that the revival of this awakening is available. The progression is described for us in this 85th Psalm. You see, this awakening begins not in a tent. It doesn't begin in a stadium. It begins in your heart. Then those like-minded, faithful servants experience God at the level that produces an awakening in others around them. It is contagious. The 85th Psalm, I'll begin with in the first, first three verses, and we'll unpack that a little bit. Lord, you poured out blessings on your land. You restored the fortunes of Israel. You forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered their sins. You held back your fury. You kept back your blazing anger. First, we need to acknowledge God's faithfulness. God shows favor. God embraces his people with loving grace. He accepts them as their father. Despite their sins, he forgave them. He lifted their sin from them, and he carried it away. Last week, we heard about how God didn't pick this land. God chose the faithfulness of the forefathers we had that formed this nation. You see, he wants to bless us. That's who he is. God's action in judging sin can be his wrath, and his attitude in judging Sin can be his anger. Psalms 85, verse 4 through 7. Now restore us again, O God, of, your, of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. You will, be angry with the, will you be angry with us always? Will you prolong your wrath for generations? Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. We need to realize our carnal ways. We need to truly, tearfully, fearfully repent. We should turn back, change our direction, change our minds, change our speech, change our hearts, change our actions, and return to God. This is the need in our lives. It's the need of our churches today, a return to what God says we should be, where the church and its people should be, and where we should stand and we should stand on his truths. Back to the truth of what God's word says and what is important to him. Not what we think is important to us at this moment in time, not what we feel, but what our master says we should be doing for him. The reason we don't experience an awakening or a revival in our churches is we don't truly experience it in our hearts. We don't want to turn around. We want to mold God toward us. We are comfortable doing what we want to do when we want to do it. We do what we do not want the pain or the correction of experiencing God's desire for us. You know, many are fine with having a Bible on their table or their desk. Many are fine with watching church when they don't have anything else to do. 
They're fine with going to church as as long as it's not an inconvenience to me and it fits into my schedule or it fits into my mood or the church fits the standards I believe or what my priorities are or the level of forgiveness that I have in my heart or the level of giving to others or our ability to justify sin in our lives. We should appeal to God. For he has been righteously angry with us. Can that righteous anger be set aside? God does it all the time. Micah 17, 8 says, Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people? Will you not stay angry? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. You know, today you can confess your sins, truly repent of your sins, and receive his loving forgiveness. We need to be restored to the life he wants us to have. We need to grow closer to him. That's the revival. That's the awakening, and it is in each of our hearts. We can rejoice in his presence, no longer facing God's displeasure or anger. We fully grasp the joy of our salvation. The psalmist writer is asking God to revive his people, bringing them back to a refreshing spiritual life. Psalms 51.12 says, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Ouch. Make me willing. Make me desire to obey you. Is that what you really, really want? That's what you should really want. And you know, we anticipate a glorious future. For a new awakening and revival flows from the blessings of God. So let's pick up in verse 8 of the 85th Psalm. I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. But let them not return to their foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. So our land will be filled with his glory. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness smiles down from heaven. Yes, the Lord pours down his blessing. Our land will yield his bountiful harvest. Righteousness goes before him, preparing the way for his steps. I read that and I read that again. And I read that again. You hear from the Lord the words of peace and friendship. But there's a warning there. Do not return to your foolishness. Do not let this be a roller coaster ride where you're here praising God and then you're somewhere else. Revival within you is ongoing. It's not an emotional moment, it's not an impulsive run to the altar. It's a true commitment to change your direction. Psalms 80, verse 19. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord God of heaven's army. Make your face to shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. Right fellowship with God's glory gives God glory. And it's demonstrated in our life. Look again at verse 10. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. 
Think about that. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, here's the essence of what God in Christ has done for us and how we can fellowship with him and draw closer to him. The truth of sin and judgment meets the mercy of God and it meets at the cross. God's righteousness and demand for repentance, we are now resolved with peace with God. Truth, faithfulness, and obedience characterizes us in him. God blesses that which is good. A righteous life prepares us to meet Christ unashamed and forgiven. We experience revival or an awakening when we are restored to spiritual health. When we've recovered from sin, we've recovered from discouragement, and we we are made to grow and mature in him and his word. And that does not happen just because God has changed his mind. That only happens because of Jesus' promise to us and decisions that you have made. It will not happen because we're comfortable with where we are or or comfortable with who we are. It's because you do not want to change and you do not want the pain of change. We choose not to live as Jesus taught us. We choose to sit and wait rather than ask a sovereign God to use us with his glory and believing that the power that he promises us in his word actually resides within us. Besides being comfortable, we also sit and wait because we are fearful. Not fearful of God, but we're fearful of the unknown. We forget the promises that he gives us. We forget the promises that Jesus has told us that he would be with us always. You see, we want to know the answer before we really hear the problem. That should never be the case for a true believer. We should not be fearful. Jesus has not abandoned us. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 27. I am leaving you a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a a gift the world cannot give. So do not be troubled or afraid. We believe Jesus when he said that he's with us always, right? We should believe Jesus when he said he would be with us always. God walks through the valley with us. Scriptures say we would, should not fear or be anxious. However, one of the scariest feelings, and here we go with emotions again versus God's truth, the scariest moments are when a person can't have or see a clear direction. When we travel, if you travel into a big city and you're not sure where you're going, you thank God for GPS. Because then you feel a little better. Or if you're in a country town where people always give you landmarks and they tell you, go down here, you'll see a green sign, you take a right, and then you're going to see a red barn and you take a left. When you see those landmarks, you feel better. You're more familiar. Folks, the cross is your landmark. We realize that we're going in the right direction when we focus on the cross. In our personal lives, we want the same feeling of relief each step we take, and the promise is there in the cross. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We're not promised tomorrow, but we are promised that he is with us always. And with our lips, we say that he is a sovereign God in control of all things 
but yet we want to get behind the steering wheel and drive. We want peace. Peace like an old Jewish man had as he was waiting for surgery. His son-in-law was about to perform the surgery. His son-in-law was a renowned surgeon. The father-in-law looked at his son-in-law and said, as they were wheeling into the operating room, don't worry, son. I'm at perfect peace with the surgery and you performing it. Just do, just do the best. And remember this, that if it doesn't go well and something happens to me, your mother-in-law is going to live with you and your wife for the rest of her life. <laughs> no pressure. As we live on this earth, we only find temporary ceasing of hostilities, not permanent peace. Someone wrote one time that for the last 4,000 years, it's believed there have been a total of 268 years that there was without some sort of war. Before World War II, there was an average of 2.61 wars per year. After World War II and organized efforts for peace, that number increased to three per year. The peace of the world is not the peace Christ wishes for his followers. God's peace is often compared to a hurricane. A hurricane is a huge and very, very destructive winds and rain. It spins debris everywhere. There is great violence with it. Yet the eye of the hurricane is calm and serene, utterly peaceful. Christ wants his people in the eye of that storm. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 7, Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. God's peace is relational, not circumstantial. True peace is not found in positive thinkings or in absence of conflict or in good feelings. It comes from trusting God to work everything out in the way that is best for you and that brings glory to his kingdom. Lorena, if you guys want to come up. You know, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And when it's used, its desire and wish is for a deep peace that overpowers the world. It also allows calmness inside. A believer's peace, revival, and awakening comes from God. And I want to touch real quickly on four aspects of it. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to come back and wrap up. First, we need peace with God. Paul writes in Romans 5 that we receive the peace when we know and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Until then, we can have no true peace. God's peace is relational, and the only way to, to, uh, Christ, to get to Christ is through the cross. He is the Prince of Peace, and the rest that we need for this long journey. Proverbs 3 tells us to trust in the Lord and not to lean on our own understanding. The next aspect is we need to have peace in God. Peace is transformational. It happens in the life of a believer because Jesus Christ being in control of your life. You can pray for tranquility of the peace of others when Jesus is driving the bus. And then there's a peace of God. This is an inward peace that you have as a mature Christian. We are saved for a purpose, for a mission, God's will. Only by walking, by walking closely with the Lord, can your purpose and mission be known? 
Paul tells us in Philippians 4, not to be anxious about anything, but in prayer and petition to God and his peace that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace allows us to focus on our eternal home, not our trials. And finally, the peace on earth. This is not a result of the world. It's not a result of unsaved people. This is a place that a believer can display the world to the world, love, grace, and mercy because of God's sovereign grace to us, his sovereignty in our lives and his faithfulness that he has in us and we should have in him. Our sense of worth should not come from the people around us, but from the Lord himself. To know God intimately and experience him. And there's a difference between knowing him and experiencing him. You will realize that you're in his will. Remember, Peter needed Jesus to call him out of the boat. He didn't need to listen to the disciples telling him to stay in the boat. John's, Jesus' words in John 14 indicated that he knew the cross was extremely near, but his disciples thought that he would remain with them forever, that he would always be there against any opposition, and they could stay in the background. Sounds like some of us today. You see, they wanted to ride the ride, but they didn't want to pay the toll. John 16, Jesus promises them hope. He promised them resurrection. He promised them a home not made of human hands. This is the same promise that Jesus gives us today and that we will experience through God. This is his promise as we determine God's mission for you, your home, in your church, and in your community, in the state, and in this nation, and in this evil world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And the Lord Haste the day when the face shall be Citizenship in Christ's kingdom is sure. Our destiny is set, and we have victory over sin through repentance. Revival and awakening needs to begin with each and every one of us. The peace of God is constant overflow of grace was purchased at such a debt for us on Calvary. Sin is not overlooked. but it's acknowledged and forgiven. Knowing this during trials, we can live as David penned in Psalms 4, in peace I lay down and sleep. 
For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. A revival begins in your heart. And in that peace that we just sang about. Hear the words of Jesus. If you're wanting to know when he will return, Matthew 24, 14. He's talking about his return. He says these words. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. We have work to do. We should be committed to him.